Chapter 5 of Bismarck and the Origin of the German Empire by F. M. Poek. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Pamela Nagami. King William I and Bismarck. The achievement of German unity is closely connected with the second great crisis in the history of the Prussian Constitution. This crisis, which came to a head in 1862, ended in a victory for the crown and emphasized the peculiar relations between the parliament and the executive in england the theory of popular sovereignty has acquired some validity both in fact and in law in germany and especially in prussia the pressure of history as we have seen has been on the side of monarchical sovereignty in practice sovereignty is of course distributed both in england and in germany the difference between the two states is one of emphasis when we say that a theory of popular sovereignty defines the facts or has one expression for itself in england we summarize a complicated set of circumstances the most powerful force in england is upon the whole the body of elected members of parliament who expound the preponderating wishes cravings passions and prejudices of the electors at the same time various other forces which may be said to possess sovereignty exercise their power by the hold which they have upon the electors and the elected reverence for law and custom religious belief respect for the dignity and influence of certain social classes obedience to the influence of wealth direct the votes of englishmen no less than self-interest reasoned convictions or philanthropic motives yet there is a general agreement or moral sense which identifies the state with this form of democratic government it is felt that the consciousness of nationality is satisfied and that the well-being and unity of the kingdom are safeguarded although some thinkers regard it as a mere convenience and a few see nothing in it but a temporary eccentricity the great majority feel that popular sovereignty of this kind is the imperfect expression of an ideal form of self-government to which all healthy nations must aspire in prussia on the contrary the general moral sense is in favour of the crown the belief in parliamentary institutions is probably as widespread and as intelligent in the one country as in the other but in prussia although sovereignty is diffused as it is in england it is so exercised as to maintain the authority of the central government apart from the authority of parliament as in england all sorts of influences play upon the king and his ministers from parliament from the press from various schools of thought but the crown is still the centre of political power rightly or wrongly the prussians have always refused to carry constitutional strife as far as civil war from eighteen sixty two onwards what has been described as the spirit of old prussia supported bismarck through the various stages of his policy and gave unity to his measures the monarchical theory of the constitution was expounded with some felicity by king william i in a conversation which he had with the king of bavaria in eighteen sixty at this time william was still regent but the principles which then inspired his rule were characteristic of his whole life 
having found a constitution i consider it my duty to conform myself to it and not to falsify it by unnatural interpretations i have lived long enough in the proximity of government to convince myself of the evil which resulted from the system pursued by the late ministry he was not concerned he continued to say whether a constitution was conducive to the well-being of a nation but only to express the conviction that where it did exist the idea of making the measures of the government public and of calling the people to a legitimate participation of the legislation had penetrated into all minds and that in such a case it would be the height of danger to put oneself in contradiction to a feeling of this nature as such an opposition would be equivalent to placing on a formal record the distrust of the sovereign towards his people upon the same ground of distrust it was my opinion that it was a false policy to seek the security of the throne in the limitations of the constitution security of government consisted in the wise alternation between tightening and loosening the reins of government i have made up my mind to rule in this sense and on this ground i had granted a free movement in the constitutional sense but in doing so i fully intended to guard against letting the reins fall altogether out of my hands this passage illustrates the honesty and directness of the great king it also explains the cause both of his hostility to his brother's ministers and of his later quarrel with the liberals who were his allies in eighteen sixty william was more of a prussian than his brother and also more of a realist he desired above all things to see prussia one of the great states of europe and he saw that in their determination to stultify the constitution of eighteen fifty his brother's advisers had alienated the people and done nothing to increase the prestige of their country the alliance between the bureaucracy the squires and the orthodox lutheran clergy was in his view anti-national because it maintained a spirit of caste and depended for its existence upon the maintenance of the old social and provincial divisions when he came to power william as regent formed a ministry from the right wing of the liberal party in prussia he hoped in this way to rally to his side and to the cause of prussian greatness general public opinion the ministry was composed of men who believed in strengthening the army in taking an independent line in european affairs and in using prussia to advance the cause of german national unity they were devoted to the crown rather than to the constitution but realized that modern society needed constitutional expression and could not be driven by the romantic and reactionary notions of the holy alliance the regent could also hope for support from the older and more democratic section of the liberal party which was led by the younger finke the great son of a great father finke desired to carry on the work of stein in an english fashion he believed that the genius of the german peoples was best developed under institutions of a british type although he went a great deal further than the regent was ever likely to go his eager desire for the free development of prussia had caused him to oppose the foreign no less than the domestic policy of the reactionary ministers of frederick william the fourth 
with a patriotic severity worthy of William himself. It was, however, the urgency, in the royal mind, of foreign policy, which soon broke down the understanding between William and the liberal majority in the Prussian Diet. As in 1848, the Prussian and German aspirations of the Parliament were opposed to those of the court. From 1859 to 1871, the domestic and foreign history of Prussia and of the German states generally can only be understood if it is considered as a whole. Prussia and Europe, 1850 to 1859. There was one great difference between the reaction which followed the revolution of 1848 and that which followed the war of liberation in 1815. In the earlier period, Prussia was one of the victorious powers and had taken the lead with Austria and Russia in a policy of repression. But the reaction which began in 1850, agreeable though it was to several elements in Prussian society, had involved Prussia in much humiliation. After the failure of the Frankfurt Assembly and the successful assertion of the crown in the constitutional settlement at home, Frederick William IV had tried in 1849 to carry on the work of German unity in his own way. He was ambitious to settle the German question on his own romantic lines. His ministers were glad to have an opportunity of asserting themselves in Europe, and the disappointed national liberals under Gagern were willing to join forces with him. He summoned a new national parliament to meet at Erfurt for the discussion of a new constitution. Bismarck was fond of contending later that if the king had mobilized his troops at this time as a guarantee of the smaller states against Austria, he might have taken the lead in Germany. The smaller states trusted him, for Prussian troops had largely assisted in saving their governments from radical and socialistic rebellion. National feeling was at this time roused on behalf of the duchies of Schleswig and Holstein, which were trying to dissolve their historical union with Denmark. Federal troops entered the duchies in their behalf, and Prussian sentiment was strongly in accord with German feeling. Austria was embarrassed by the Hungarian Revolution. Prussia had never before had such a good opportunity of asserting a practical and moral claim to supremacy in German affairs. The kings of Hanover and Saxony, and about twenty-seven of the smaller states, were ready to support Frederick William. Rightly or wrongly, the king allowed the opportunity to slip. His medieval mind was occupied with scruples and perplexities about the rights of his German allies. His scruples as to whether matters were ripe, says Bismarck, were nourished by his historical investigations. He desired also to be magnanimous to Austria and to the small states. Austria, in the meantime, crushed the Hungarians with the aid of Russian troops, and immediately detached Hanover and Saxony from Prussia. The four kings of Hanover, Saxony, Bavaria, and Württemberg formed a league for the protection of their own interests, and put forward a new scheme for the union of Germany. The tables were completely turned. Schwarzenberg, the chief minister of the new emperor of Austria, successfully insisted on the restoration of the Diet 
and on the acquiescence of Prussia. The Prussian minister, Manteuffel, made terms at Olmutz in Moravia, which were in effect a surrender of all Frederick William's schemes. When the young Bismarck was sent to represent his country at Frankfurt, he found that Austria was again supreme in the Diet. The success of Austria, it is important to note, had been achieved with Russian aid. The Russian government was especially interested in the future of Schleswig-Holstein. It desired to see Germany weak and disunited, and to check any manifestation of national feeling on behalf of the outlying territories. It realized, as Bismarck realized later, that a national Germany was most likely to grow out of cooperation in a national or racial cause, not out of democratic speculations. It intervened, therefore, in favor of Denmark, and during the next fifteen years the duchies became, like the Balkans, a European question. The joint action of Austria and Russia in 1850 made it clear that the German unity could only be attained through a European war. The new National Liberal Party in Prussia and the military policy of William I both had their origin in the surrender at Olmutz. During the eventful ten years between 1850 and 1860, the desire for a strong Prussian policy grew in all quarters. They were very important years also in the history of Bismarck, first as Prussian delegate at Frankfurt, then as ambassador to St. Petersburg. He watched events and realized where the opportunities of Prussia would occur. The Crimean War gave the first opening. Russia's forward policy against Turkey was opposed by England and the government of the French Emperor Napoleon III. Austria, in spite of her great obligations to Russia, decided that an understanding with the Western powers would promote her interests in the Balkans, and without actively intervening in the war, threw the weight of her influence against Russia. Bismarck was eager for an understanding between Russia and Prussia. Although his advice was not followed and the Prussian ministers hesitatingly followed the lead of Austria, the Crimean War did actually open the way for a strong independent policy in the future. The indirect consequences of this unnecessary conflict were extraordinarily important. The position of every European power was changed, for the diplomatic activity of Austria during the crisis definitely and finally shattered the holy alliance of the great eastern states. The Russians never forgave Austria, and deprived of Russian support, Austria suddenly found herself faced by a powerful conspiracy against her in Italy. Prussia, on the other hand, was free. Feeble and hesitating though her policy had been, she had made no new enemies. It was known that the possibility of a Russian understanding had been discussed. Hence the struggle for Italian unity in 1859 gave a second opening to Prussia. In one sense this opportunity also was lost. The Prussian army took no active part, and no immediate response was made to the demand for a national constitution in Germany. But just as Prussia gained freedom of action during the Crimean War, 
so she did much to strengthen her position in germany during the italian war this result was due to the regent the italian war grew out of a secret alliance between the emperor napoleon the third and the king of sardinia the latter was lord of piedmont in northwest italy and of savoy and nice on the other side of the alps under the direction of count cavour as great a statesman as bismarck himself this little state had within the last few years assumed a prominent part in european affairs in order to win the recognition of the powers and especially of france cavour had sent troops to the crimea at the congress of paris after the war he not only obtained a recognized place he also denounced the subjection of italy to austria within a few years he succeeded in driving the austrians out of lombardy and with the unofficial help of garibaldi in making his master victor emmanuel king of the greater part of italy now this startling success had two immediate results north of the alps in the first place it stirred a new wave of desire for german unity in the second place it revealed the emperor napoleon the third to be the most powerful and also the most dangerous man in europe this is not the place in which to explain the motives of napoleon the third's policy against austria or to show how he was outwitted by cavour it is sufficient to say that after the war he was generally regarded as the maker of a new kingdom and was generally suspected because he had first deserted piedmont during the struggle and afterwards added savoy and nice to france as compensation for the creation of an italian kingdom his antagonist was a great german power his support of italy had encouraged the demand for german unity everybody wanted to see whether he would pursue a similar policy among the german states and if so what his price would be since the commencement of war germany had been in a ferment the racial feeling which had been roused against france in eighteen forty awoke again at the attack of napoleon upon austria several of the greater states including bavaria and saxony desired to see a military advance to the rhine and speculated upon the future restoration of alsace to the german federation austria was anxious for german support yet unwilling to see prussia take the lead on the other hand the success of the italians was followed by the formation of national societies in germany the liberals were encouraged and indifferent to the fate of austria hoped that the regent of prussia would seize the opportunity which his brother had missed in eighteen forty nine bismarck and the realistic conservatives similarly thought that the chance had come it is significant of bismarck's elasticity and prophetic of his future policy as minister that he was prepared to see an understanding with france and to seize the duchies of schleswig and holstein for germany knowing the rankling suspicion which the russian government entertained of austria he thought that the german states could afford in the strength of german public opinion to disregard both russia and austria just as a few years earlier he had been anxious to play off the one against the other surrounded by all these conflicting hopes and counsels 
William chose his ground cautiously. He refused to take advantage of Austrian weakness, but he also did not hurry to attack France. The Prussian army advanced toward the Rhine, but so slowly that both France and Austria were able to come to terms before any military demonstration had been made. Napoleon withdrew from the war at Villafranca, and the Austrian government agreed to surrender Lombardy to Piedmont. William had acted with great wisdom, if with somewhat inglorious caution. He knew that the armistice of Villafranca had been made by Austria through fear of his intervention. He was soon to find, if he did not already know, that Napoleon would try to bargain with him for the addition to France of some of the Rhenish provinces of Germany in return for French aid. If, in other words, he had actively supported Austria, he would have become the tool of a suspicious ally. If he had allowed himself to be drawn into a French understanding, he would have been execrated as a traitor to the cause of German unity. As things stood, he had shown himself prepared to maintain the integrity of Germany, yet he had not compromised his freedom of action. It is characteristic of the man that when in 1860 he met the Emperor Napoleon at Baden, he insisted upon the presence of all the chief rulers of Germany, and made it clear to them that he would permit neither any surrender of German soil to France, nor any interference with their individual rights. William's position, however, is not sufficiently clear if we fail to note his attitude to the rising demand for a German constitution. The regent, though much more clear-headed and practical than his brother, was still in 1860 under the influence of the recent traditions of his house. He was unwilling to face the necessity of conflict with Austria, and he was eager to repudiate any intention of interfering in any way with the territorial division of Germany. This negative attitude was doubtless very honorable to him, but it was inconsistent with any attempt to revise the German constitution. At this very time, he tried in vain to carry a military program through the federal diet. It is difficult to see how he could move a step in the direction of a vigorous Prussian policy without interfering with Austrian influence or with the settlement of 1815. It was essential that he should either follow the lead of his liberal friends or pursue the policy which Bismarck afterwards mapped out for him. Yet he and his ministers rejected all the schemes for a German constitution which, at this time, were brought before him, notably a plan which originated in Baden and Coburg. And at the same time, they produced no alternative to the vacillating policy of their predecessors. The parliamentary crisis of 1862 forced the king, as he now was, to make a choice. The Prussian Constitutional Crisis, the Army Law We have seen that the cause of the cautious and negative policy of Prussia during the Italian War was the inconsistency between the liberal aspirations which the Italian successes aroused and the traditional desire to maintain the unity of the German states under the joint leadership of Austria and Prussia. Although King William had cleared the air of much vagueness, he had not decided upon a definite policy for the future. He was clear, however, upon one point, the vital necessity of a reconstituted Prussian army. 
when he found that the federal diet put difficulties in the way of a joint military policy he concentrated still more earnestly upon his prussian plans there were several reasons for his intensity of purpose william was primarily a soldier and was naturally drawn amidst his political perplexities to lay stress upon the thing which he thoroughly understood again in the period of his opposition to his brother's ministers he had realized the dependence of prussia upon european affairs this fact was made very clear to him during the crimean war when france took the leading place in europe the apparent energy and decision of the emperor napoleon the dashing qualities of the french troops the excellence of the french artillery and the military traditions of french policy profoundly impressed him in order to comprehend the european policy at this period says a french historian with truth it is essential to remember the extraordinary prestige which memories of the first empire and the crimean victories lent to our regiments william desired to make the prussian army a match for this dangerous force and he had every reason to hope that the whole of prussia would be with him at the elections of eighteen fifty eight the liberal party under finke had at last gained a majority in the prussian second chamber although finke and his friends were not in office they supported the new ministry of progress and in its turn the ministry cooperated with the chamber in taking up the reforms which had been promised for so long both as regent and as king william realized that the formation of a national as distinct from a feudal prussia must go further he acquiesced in if he was not enthusiastic for the liberal program for the reform of the rural administration the abolition of the manorial privileges in regard to the police and exemption from the land tax and for civil marriage the ministers and the diet were at one with him also in the desire for army reform the liberals were like all parties in prussia attracted by the idea of making prussia a first-class power and for the sake of their programme were anxious to compromise with the ministers on disputed details a national settlement seemed an easy task when however the future of the army was discussed all the questions of principle which lay hidden in the prussian constitution were raised again on the one side men remembered that a national levy had been the instrument of national revival in eighteen thirteen the army was the people in arms on the other side the king assumed as a matter of indisputable fact that he was the legal head of any prussian army his ancestors had made the prussian state by means of their army the ministers proposed a plan which as expressing the royal will was to be accepted as final yet which included none of the reforms demanded by public opinion the liberals prepared a scheme which incorporated the desired reforms and provided for an increase in the number and strength of the army on the existing basis of a national levy the weakness of the constitutional compromise was seen at once no scheme could be put into operation without money the diet alone could grant supplies the king insisted that he alone was responsible for the army the dilemma was a real one for the ministerial plan involved a thorough reconstruction of the army and increased the importance of the professional element 
at the expense of the old national element or landwehr the opposition very reasonably urged that they had a right to discuss a plan which involved the personal relations of every prussian to the army for the time a deadlock was avoided by the grant of additional supplies for the army for one year the government immediately used the money to carry out its own scheme and availing itself of a legal right to levy existing taxes treated it in future budgets not as an extraordinary but as an ordinary and permanent part of the revenue in eighteen sixty one and again in eighteen sixty two the electors thoroughly aroused sent a large majority back to the diet definitely opposed to the royal plan the dispute was not merely about technical details it was of a serious political nature by eighteen sixty two king william had been driven to assert the principle of absolutism in its naked form he had honestly tried so he felt to work the constitution but he was legally the head of the army kriegsherr and if his claim was disputed he was justified in tightening the reins of government and in appealing to his supremacy over the constitution and the law the constitution had been granted by his predecessor the statute book was composed of decrees which he and his ancestors had sanctioned but in no case had his sovereignty been diminished in cases of emergency nay even in the usual course of affairs the king could take away or suspend what he had granted thus fortified by the identical arguments which had destroyed the house of stuart william went forward with his new army in defiance of his own people to the conquest of germany in eighteen sixty six victorious in the war with austria he was reconciled with his people and absolved by his parliament during these years the real ruler of prussia was bismarck the king had entered upon the contest with other advisers a conservative element had remained in the ministry since his accession as regent and he was surrounded by men of anti-liberal tendency the new minister of war who was responsible for the details of the army law was von roon bismarck's old fellow-student it is clear from von roon's statements that he regarded the reconstruction of the army on a professional basis and the destruction of the landwehr as important for political no less than for military reasons by this means the king would have an instrument which enforced his own will and did not reflect public opinion before the end of eighteen sixty one every liberal had left the ministry the king in eighteen sixty two was left face to face with the opposition as the months passed by the tension became more and more acute william decided to abdicate the letter of abdication was already written when he at last summoned bismarck to his councils and decided either to win or to be destroyed he was depressed and animated by turns now encouraged by the boldness of bismarck now cast down i can perfectly well see where all this will end he said after one of the minister's earliest speeches in the diet over there in front of the opera house under my windows they will cut off your head and mine a little while afterwards his thoughts constantly ran upon strafford and charles i bismarck made it his task to strengthen in him 
the part of an officer fighting for kingdom and fatherland. The views of Bismarck in 1862. For a few months before his appointment as first minister in September 1862, Bismarck was Prussian ambassador at Paris. The Duc de Persigny, Napoleon's minister of the interior, relates in his memoirs a conversation which he had with Bismarck upon Prussian affairs. The Duke perhaps exaggerates the value attached to his advice, but the conversation brings out clearly the difficulties of the political situation. Bismarck explained that the Liberal Party in Prussia threatened the prerogatives of the crown and desired to disorganize the army. If it succeeded, he was certain that his country was ruined. Yet on the other hand, the Liberal Party was very strong in Prussia and Germany, and on this question had public opinion behind it. Persigny replied that if the various classes in Prussia were, like the English, accustomed to political warfare, and were likely by mutual concessions to restore the political balance in periods of crisis, he would advise the king to follow boldly a constitutional way of government. But he understood that, as in France during the Revolution, the Prussian liberals were carried away by their own unfortunate illusions. Under the circumstances, the king must take warning from the mistakes of Louis XVI and Louis-Philippe and depend upon his army. The Prussian constitution itself gave him a great advantage over other rulers, for in time of crisis he was legally entitled to raise the budget of the previous year without a further grant by the chambers. In the spirit of this council, Bismarck carried through the changes in the army and disregarded the Prussian diet. He persuaded the king to desist for the present from any attempts at concession, even on other points. I succeeded in convincing him, he wrote in his reflections, that so far as he was concerned, it was not a question of liberal or conservative or this or that shade, but rather of monarchical rule or parliamentary government, and that the latter must be avoided at all costs, if even by a period of dictatorship. But Bismarck was very conscious that he could only succeed if he won the confidence of his fellow countrymen by the pursuit of a vigorous national policy. His speeches in the Diet and his conversations with the king were directed to this end. He at once began to define more sharply precisely those objects of Prussian policy which King William had left in cautious obscurity. He differed to some extent from all the conservative views, from the dynastic policy of the king, the uncompromising nationalism of the Junker party of the country gentry, and the visions of the idealists or romantic conservatives. He was, like his master, a Prussian, heart and soul. But he was more interested than William in the task of German unity. William was a patriotic German who desired to combine the interests of the German states. Bismarck was intent upon the great work of federal reconstruction. He no longer believed in the federal constitution of 1815, and he despised the Diet. He was a born administrator. In his view, Prussia should force a revision upon Germany and, where necessary, disregard inconvenient or artificial barriers. He did not agree with William that Prussia should not seek to combine her frontiers by absorbing the states which separated her provinces, 
nor did he agree that the German dynasties had unchangeable rights. Dynasties, it is true, were essential to Germany. They made German patriotism active and effective. The key to German politics was to be found in princes and dynasties, not in publicists, whether in Parliament and the press or on the barricades. So far, however, as dynastic interests threaten us once more with national disintegration and impotence, they must be reduced to their proper measure. In particular, Austria and the dynastic interests of the House of Habsburg must go. In consequence of these convictions, he did not altogether agree with the high and dry conservatives from whom he had sprung and with whom he had generally cooperated. His monarchical sentiments were innate. As a schoolboy, he says, to my childish ideas of justice, Harmodius and Aristogiton, as well as Brutus, were criminals, and Tell, a rebel and a murderer. He was repelled as a student from the Burschenschaften, or National Liberal Clubs, by the want of breeding of their members. But as he became acquainted with political life, he was equally annoyed by the red tape of the bureaucrats and by the stupidity and short-sightedness of the Junkers. He realized that the national and liberal, even the socialist movements of the age, had much in common with his aspirations. The liberals were material to be used in working up national enthusiasm, whether in Prussia or in Germany as a whole. The socialists held some just notions of statecraft. It was not certainly by appeals to liberal sentiment that Prussia would take the lead in Germany. The events of 1848 and 1859 had made that clear. There must be no shameful union with democracy. Yet Bismarck felt that democratic tools were by no means useless. Prussia was about to fish in troubled waters, and the waters had been troubled by the new national movement. Germany was conquered by Prussia in 1866, but, as M. Denis has remarked, the conquest was to some extent imposed upon her by the imperious impatience with which the great mass of enlightened men demanded a radical revision of the federal constitution of 1815. Lastly, Bismarck, as a realist, had no sympathy with the sentimentalists. His point of view was justified not by domestic but by foreign circumstances. He saw Prussia surrounded by three great military powers, France, Austria, Russia. We have seen how he anticipated war with Austria and was prepared for understandings with France and Russia. We shall see that he made a temporary alliance between Austria and Prussia, the cornerstone of his policy between 1862 and 5. Not because he shared the view that Austria had any longer a moral claim upon Germany, but because he desired to show a firm front on the question of the duchies. Similarly, in spite of the horrified protests of Gerlach, he welcomed a commercial treaty with the arch-enemy of legitimacy, Napoleon III. Bismarck, in other words, expressed the views of the new historical school. His blunt phrases translated the teaching of philosophers and historians. The only sound principle of action for a great state is political egoism. It must be remembered, on the other hand, that his realistic outlook enabled Bismarck to recognize strength and health wherever they were to be found. 
if he had a contempt for the impractical light-hearted confidence of the ordinary prussian liberal he gradually became very much alive to the need of basing the state upon new foundations he was a trained diplomatist and an unscrupulous intriguer but he had no illusions about the shams of the diplomatic game he knew that in the end he was but the servant of a great people which was slowly learning what it is to be a nation End of chapter 5